Russia has invaded Ukraine, quoting Elliot Cohen of the Atlantic, an assault not only that country, but on international norms of behavior. For people who listen to this show, you know that I think when we say norms, we should often insert the word principles. Meanwhile, not to be overlooked in the din of war, today marked the first criminal conviction for the January 6th insurrection. Guy Refit was found guilty on all charges. And these two events, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, both land on the scale of illiberalism. This could be where I would provide a definition of illiberalism. But as we are joined by an expert on the topic, we should have him do the defining. Let's welcome now to the show Thomas Main, professor of politics at Brook College, author of The Rise of Illiberalism. Sir, welcome to Democracy Nerd. Thanks for being one. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much, and uh, I appreciate this opportunity. Let's start where I started. How do you define illiberalism? Well, um, it, you have to define it in opposition to uh, the political philosophy of liberal democracy. Okay, and what is that political philosophy? It, it's basically the philosophy that that's summed up in the second paragraph uh, of the Declaration of Independence. Okay. Uh, it includes political egalitarianism, all men are created equal, right? Uh, it includes human rights, you know, which according to the Declaration are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, it also includes uh, electoral democracy, right? The just consent of the governed. And we would also include the, uh, the rule of law. Government must act through the law. And we could also include a political um, culture of tolerance, a uh, ethics of controversy based on reasoned discourse. So that's liberal democracy or liberalism. So then illiberalism is any ideology, left or right, which rejects in part or in whole uh, those uh, principles. And uh, so, for instance, we, we could talk about left-wing illiberalism, which would be all forms of communism right? and, and anarchism. Uh, and then on the, the on the right, uh, there is uh, of fascism and authoritarianism, and there are the the various schools of of, of illiberal thought in America: the alt right, the alt light, uh, uh, white supremacists, neo Nazis, and so forth. Let's take each of these events in turn. Uh, is it fair? Is it fair to describe both of those events, which are dominating so much of the conversation? Of course, the invasion of Ukraine, which won't be, neither of us will try to don a cap of international affairs experts in this conversation, but it is the topic that is dominating the world dialogue at this moment. Uh, under the cacophony of that conflict is the ongoing trials and just recent now conviction of participants in the January 6th insurrection. Is it fair to describe, is it accurate to describe, uh, or is it imprecise to describe those events as examples of illiberalism? And if it is, uh, if it is accurate, if it's not unfair, imprecise, explain why. Well, I would say, you know, with some qualifications, it is accurate. Uh, if you reject the principles of liberal democracy, you are illiberal. And Putin, Putin does that. He does, you know, he does not believe in electoral democracy. Uh, he does not believe in uh, the rule of law. 
He engages in uh, propaganda and, uh, and terrorism against uh, violence against uh, um, opponents. So Putin clearly uh, qualifies as an illiberal. Um, as for the uh, people who stormed the capital, uh, I think you, you, some of them clearly, based on the symbols that they wore, for, like for instance, for the for the three percenters, for the Proud Boys, for the America First movement, all of those are examples of um, illiberal ideologies with their web outlets. And I think that uh, you know, although many of the people who stormed the Capitol, um, you know, were not themselves contributors to and writers about and, and spokespeople for illiberal political ideologies. I think they were influenced by them, right? Uh, and uh, in particular, you know, the idea that, um, you know, you get to use violence under certain circumstances and that if your political adversaries win, ad the adversaries meaning the Democrats, the idea that if your adversaries are win, they're traitors, and you must fight like hell to prevent them from taking power and oppose the peaceful transfer of power, that's a very illiberal sentiment. What percentage of the people at the rally would define themselves as, no, would describe, would be willing to say yes to the description yes. of being illiberal? My guess is, because what I'm going to get at is your choice of word, and I'm going to ask if we have any synonyms, because my guess is, 98%, 104%, 91% of the participants, if where they are accused of being a liberal, you might say, no, the percentage is lower than that. They would probably all say yes, because a liberal, as you use it, I think is different than what, I don't know, a regular cable news viewer would view it. How come this word, are there any synonyms? Let's fight about nomenclature and semantics for a moment. Yeah, well, the, the, as I use the term, it means an anti-democratic political ideology, okay? And it's uh, illiberalism is a handy one word um, description of what I'm concerned with, as opposed to a phrase like uh, anti-democratic ideology. Uh, now, oftentimes when you sometimes you see people use the word illiberal to mean uh, things like um, uh, political nastiness and particular. It's also sometimes used to refer to um, kind of like extreme political correctness. Um, like, uh, you know, people who are, you know, uh, very critical of conservatives, uh, people who um, uh, are, um, you know, attack you if you are uh, a supporter of uh, Israel, uh, if you are a, cent a, a centrist and you raise some questions about Black Lives Matter, sometimes you get attacked and criticized. And sometimes all those sorts of attacks on centrists, uh, those political, politically correct attacks, sometimes that's all known as illiberalism. That's not the way I use the phrase. Um, and uh, So why know, do you I, use I, this phrase? And, 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 I, and I dwell on words for a little bit, because if sure. we're going to commit to reason, that means we're going to commit to using a method of communication that we can understand yes. each other. And that means that words will matter. It also means, it also matters, because, you know, words are used as political cudgels, maybe as sure. part of the primary political cudgels, unless we're actually using cudgels. And so, I, you know, one of my hobby horses is the, I think, misuse and overuse of the word neoliberal. I, I think that the yes. word liberal has okay. almost lost its meaning because for academics, it, yeah. you, know, you would you would include 
probably people in the Ayn Rand tradition as as members. Anybody sort of is an anti-communist uh, in the in the liberal tradition. In the common parlance, if words can change their definition, the word means something different now. Yeah. Do you have any other than anti-democratic? Is that your favorite synonym, or why do you use why did you use this as your favorite word? Well, first of all, I was looking for a word as opposed to a phrase that had to be repeated over. Didn't want no dashes. What you didn't want any dashes? You don't have to mess with any dashes. I hear you. Keep going. (laughs) Um, And also, I think listen, you you know, if if one is clear about one's definitions. And I think I've been about as clear in my definition as I possibly can be, which is that I'm talking about um, movements and people who explicitly break, reject liberal democracy or one of its tenets. And I've just given you a very complete definition of what, yeah. you know, list of what those tenets are. OK, so I think as long as I'm clear about that. Uh, the fact that the word illiberal sometimes has other meanings and other connotations. Well, as you know, you know, in, in, in politics, there are many words that have, you know, several different connotations, several different meanings. All you can do is try to be as clear as you possibly can be. And also the, the thing I want to emphasize here is that the movement I am talking about, it, it, it extends to much more than people who are nasty to Republicans. No, I don't care about all of that stuff. People who say foolish things like, you know, they tell you, oh, don't talk about pregnant women because that insults trans people. You know, sometimes people who make that argument or get get called illiberal. Look, what I'm talking about is something much more radical. Okay, and it at much more radical, and also even though it's the radical, idea that and, and that idea is that reason discourse that the idea that we will make decisions together that will be committed at some deep level, if not at every moment, to democracy. That yeah. opposition to that basic mutual understanding. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, and really nothing else. Now, and there are you know there are you in some websites you get the full ex, very explicit articulation of that ideology. And then in other websites, it's watered down a little bit, right? Um, but that's that's essentially what I'm talking about. Well, we can move beyond the semantic. I appreciate your joining me in that dalliance. We have talked a bunch on this show about the backsliding of global democracy yes. and the rise of authoritarianism. If you were going to make a Venn diagram of authoritarianism and your different, you know, your usage of illiberalism. How much of a solar eclipse would that yeah. be? Where they, yeah. where do they depart, and where they, where do they intersect? Well, I would say authoritarianism is one form, one type of illiberalism, one one specific type of illiberal ideologies. Okay, so let's let's begin with a couple. So first of all, you can have left wing illiberalism, as I said, and you can have right wing illiberalism. Okay, that's that's number one. And amongst the right-wing illiberalisms, you have uh, fascism, you know, neo-Nazism. You have the Ku Klux Klan. You have you know, people who are explicitly um, white supremacist. Um, authoritarianism um, is is a, a, a type of illiberal uh, ideology. It um, it, re- it usually focuses so, on. So all authoritarians are illiberal, but not all illiberals are authoritarians. Yes. Yes, I would say that's correct. How could you be illiberal 
if you're not an authoritarian, what would be your commitment? Oh, because you could, it, it wouldn't you just be, be a full how... blown to- Yeah, you could be a full blown totalitarian. Like for instance, pe- people who are Maoists or people who are Nazis, this, this goes beyond authoritarianism, okay? Yeah. Authoritarianism is usually the idea of a single strong man who concentrates, it's always a strong man, who concentrates all political power in his hands um, and of course, and, and so, you, you know, authoritarianism uh, would apply to, you know, like Latin American dictators, for example, African dictators and to Putin. Right. Uh, but then I think I, I think there's a there's a difference between authoritarianism and, for instance, um, communism, which is, a, a, you know, a more uh, detailed, a more worked out uh, form of a liberalism. Um, and one that doesn't necessarily focus on having a single uh, powerful man. You know, communism usually focuses on having a single uh, all-powerful party. Right? Yeah. Although it often, and, and although communism often degenerates into authoritarianism. So anyhow, I would I would say that authoritarianism is 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 an illiberal ideology that focuses that that, that puts a great deal of emphasis on the need to have a single powerful, strong man. And that's the essence of authoritarianism. Why do you care about this? When we, we delve into this, well, let's get, let's get specific and detailed about something that we all care about. Yeah. But it seems to me now that we can no longer assume that everybody cares about it. We can no longer just sit atop what we thought was a foundation of brick and rebar and be concerned that we're having dances on top of mixed metaphor heads of pins resting on foundations of sand or something, you know, not quite as strong as brick and rebar. Uh, Why do you care about this topic? This is an excellent question. Okay. So, so what's the big deal about liberal democracy? Who cares really? Well, let's suppose we looked over the whole course of human history and did a review of the history of governance throughout, you know, from the very beginning, okay? And we looked at all forms of government that are now or ever have been, okay? Is it possible when in telling that long story uh, to put a finger on any particular philosophy, any particular type of government that has been particularly successful at uh, improving the human condition uh, at making the world better off for you know the great body of people. Now it turns out that work like that has been done. Uh, there is you know really magisterial work, a three-volume work by S. E. Finer, who was a uh, British political scientist, and hi- this work was called um, "The History of Government from Its er- Earliest Beginnings." Okay, and then there was also a similar sort of book written by someone who's probably more familiar to your audience, Francis Fukuyama. He wrote a two volume uh, account of um, political order and political decay, okay? And um, Feiner, who who finished his work uh, in the uh, mid eighties, you know, says outright, you know, that there doesn't seem to be any other form of government that the humankind has hit upon that has done as good a job at improving the lot of common people, all people, as the post-war secular democratic 
um, governments, that is to say liberal democracies. And that is essentially the same conclusion that um, Fukuyama comes to. So the point is Fukuyama, this. If, forgive my interruption, Fukuyama, who talked about the end of history. And as yes. we were literally just talking about in the preparation for this show, yes. I didn't know how much we'd talk about him, but if, if at all, we'd love to have him on this show. But the, uh, but if you're in Ukraine, if you were paying attention to what happened in January 6th, if you're watching yeah. what's been happening in India, uh, it doesn't feel like history is over at this very moment. No. Keep going. Yeah, but it, well, I'll come back to that in a second. But the point I want to make is this. I'm referencing Fukuyama not because of the end of history thesis, but because of this big two volume work. Yeah, not not empirical. So so it's here, not making the empirical case that it is the only answer, but making the sort of descriptive case that it seems to be the best answer. Yes, yes. Uh, that's the, Fukuyama does that in his two volumes, and also very very important, uh, you know, because you know uh, less associated with the with the end of history thesis is Feiner's work, which is one of the great works of you know, political science in you know, the 20th, 21st century. And they both come to the conclusion, gee whiz, humankind has really not hit upon a better type of government than this. And so that means, folks, you know, if you're wondering, what does liberalism mean to me? You, you think, you know, think about you know, the way the liberal democratic government we have in the United States now, by the way, I'd be happy to tell you about all the shortcomings of American democracy. I could I could do sure. a podcast on that. Um, there hasn't been a it, person I've met yet who I want to have be king. Yeah, right. But, um, you know, uh, uh, but as compared to the alternatives, American liberal democracy, uh, which needs to be improved and reformed, does a pretty good job, better than the obvious alternatives of, you know, defending people, feeding people protecting people and so forth. If you doubt that, if you say to yourself, gee, I really don't think that American democracy does much for me. And there are, of course, unfortunately, some groups of people that have been overlooked by American democracy. But I don't see any of those people saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to move to Putin's Russia because people like me, you know, at the bottom, you know, working class people and so forth, we get treated so much better in the uh, Putin's oligarchy. No, I don't think that's true. So uh, the, the quality of life of everybody, all Americans who are listening to this podcast, much of it derives from America's imperfect, but still uh, critically important liberal democratic political system. And that's why attacks on that system are a big deal. Rebuilding or building a shared commitment to democracy itself, that is a it's got to be an important purpose. It's certainly the most important purpose we can lend ourselves to. I would certainly agree with that. And you make the descriptive case that illiberalism, that anti-democracy is a transpartisan endeavor. I think though also based on your research, is it fair to say that illiberalism in the United States as distinct from let's say, you know, uh, Russia in the 1930s or 1950s uh, tilts strongly towards in our country, uh, a particular political leaning. And to be clear, I think that the binary understanding of, of politics is an unfortunate manifestation yeah. of the fact that most of us ha- are, are blessed with two arms and two legs uh, and yeah. it, it ends up being poorly descriptive in too many ways. But but nonetheless, is that a fair understanding? Yes. Of leans? Yes. And how does your research bear that out? Well, I would say, first of all, as, as I say, there is an illiberalism of the left and there's an illiberalism of the right. The illiberalism of the left 
is all forms of communism, Maoism, Guvarism, Trotskyism, you know, you name it. And the illiberalism of the right is the alt-right, the alt-light, neo-Nazis, and smaller groups like the Manosphere and so forth. Okay, so what I did, you know, when because at the beginning of my research, people would say, oh, these these radicals you're talking about, it's a, they're an insignificant group of people. Nobody pays any attention to them. You know, move on. Don't give these people any attention because they're a minuscule group of people. Well, what I did is uh, I looked at almost 2,000 political websites, okay? And in various ways we, I could talk about, I, I categorized them from illiberal left, right, through uh, ordinary garden variety progressivism, through the political center, on to ordinary conservatism, and then off into the illiberal right, okay? Um, and what I did is I purchased um, uh, web traffic data to see how many people in 2019 visited these sites. In other words, I looked at the audience for left-wing illiberalism and for right-wing illiberalism, okay? And I discovered that the audience for uh, right-wing illiberalism in 2019, I was able to classify about 215 uh, sites as being politically illiberal on the right, they got 186 million visitors on average each month. Now, is that a lot or a little? Okay. And this is where my methodology of sort More of than we get. What did we get? No, I said it's, it's, <laughs> I, more, know, than, I, I, it's more than I, we get. Know, I could look it up for you, but I, I, I unfortunately, I, you know, it's, it's not, it's not hard. To get this yeah. kind of data, you sure. can, there's there's a you can you can go, there are various places that will sell you the data. Now we're trying to keep ourselves a secret. Right. That's a, that's our big thing. We're sort of we're, we're keeping going. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyhow, right wing illiberalism, i.e., the alt right, neo Nazis, all the rest. 2019 gets on average each month 186 million visitors. Yeah. Right. It, again, is that a lot or a little? A little. Everything is compared to what? Well. If you compare the illiberal right to ordinary garden variety conservative sites, so by that I mean places like the National Review, Commentary, the American Spectator, say what you want about them, they, they, they don't reject democracy, okay? So the illiberal right get, has an audience about 30%, well, more like 31%, the size of the conventional conservative audience. And, it, and also the illiberal right gets an audience. It's about 19% of the ordinary garden variety left audience. Hey, that's a lot. I mean, when you're talking so about- So you're saying the conservative sites that you looked at that, that still demonstrated some sort of commitment to, uh, to reason and some yes. commitment to, to democracy, uh, those would get what, like 450 million? Uh, Something for, like that. Yeah, yeah. Five, I don't five, have the five, number five hundred million, and but one hundred eighty-six million from yeah, the. But, from but the here's little, but but here's right. where I want you to hold on to your hat. Okay? okay, let's compare the illiberal right to the illiberal left. Okay, okay? so the illiberal right is we as I say one hundred eighty-six million visits on average a month. The illiberal left, okay, is two point five million visits. <laughs> on average a month. That is 1.3% the size of the illiberal 
right. And it's a tight, it's less than a tenth of a percent of the audience of mainstream uh, progressive sites. So the point is this, if you're concerned as I am about uh, ideologies that reject democracy, right? That, that, and, and if you say that, you know, some of these places have audiences that are too small to worry much about, well, the, the, the type of illiberalism that has a very small audience is the left-wing illiberals. And it is the right-wing illiberals that have a very significant web audience. And, and allow me to make just one other point. Please. One other point. Another measure of the size of right-wing illiberalism was a study done in 2017. It was sponsored by the University of Virginia, the Center for Politics, University of Virginia. They did a, a, a scientific event, stud, poll, scientific poll, opinion poll of the uh, representative of the entire American adult population. And they found that I think it was uh, about 4% of the people polled said that they favored neo-Nazism and slightly higher percentages said they favored white nationalism in the alt-right. Hey, now, wait a second. 4% of the American population says yes to neo-Nazism. Well, you figure that out and you were talking about a population of about 10 million people. That is a lot of people. It's more, than, more than, than, than the population of New York, more than the population of 47 states, larger the than the entire Jewish population in the United States. So slice it however you want to. If you were concerned about attacks on liberal democracy, they come almost exclusively from the right. So it's plenty to pot in that 10 million or, you know, give or take is plenty to populate many a Facebook group, plenty to provide yeah. likes yeah. And, and make somebody look like an influencer if they, uh, if they cater to that demography or that psychography. And, and, and I want to stick with this a little bit, right? So if we look at the early part, let's look at the United States, early part of the 20th century. Yeah. My, you know, we didn't have websites then. My guess is the split would have been a little different, right? You would have yes. had people who were, uh, you know, communist, illiberally communist friendly, yeah. as well as, you know, uh, famous airplane pilots who were Nazi friendly. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that, and, and I don't know what the balance would have been, but it, you know, would have been, it would have been a mix. It yeah. now seems like in the United States, based on your research, and it's helpful. By the way, have you have you connected with? Uh, it's closer to you geographically than it is to me. Yohai Benkler, I bring him up a lot when people are doing data on methodologies that look at at internet traffic and drawing conclusions from it. Network propaganda. There's over wonderfully interesting overlap between two, your two, both of your work, and I think you uh, confirm each other a little bit. I'm not familiar with his work, but I, I'm certainly going to look him up now. But yeah, you know, check it out. let me let me say this: I've tried to get a measure of illiberal groups in the United States uh, during the '60s and before the digital age. It's very difficult to do. Yeah. Okay. But I would say this, speaking impressionistically. Okay. Um, during the '60s, you had the rise of the new left. And not all of the, you know, much of the new left was simply, you know, uh, they were left wing. Uh, they were against the war in Vietnam. They were uh, in favor of radical tactics in uh, the civil rights movement. Most of the new left was not uh, anti-democratic, 
but there were some anti-democratic movements within it. So, you know, example would be uh, the late SDS and the Weatherman movement. And so you did have fairly, and, and, oh, and by the way, during the 60s, you also had the rise of interest and the rise of Maoism in Western uh, political uh, spheres. So uh, it was Maoism was especially strong in France. And, and everybody knows, you remember the John Lennon song when he sings, and if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you ain't gonna make it with anyone anyhow. The, yeah. the reason he was singing that song is because the, the, he knew, and, and there was a fair amount of, of, of followers of Mao in the West, okay? And just that- No, he was paying attention, he was paying attention to the protest movement. Yes. And there were elements in the protest movement that were liberal. Yes, that's right. Now, just that little bit of presence of Maoism and illiberalism in the uh, left protest movements created a backlash. And the whole neoconservative movement, to a considerable extent, was based on shock that the, you know, the, the, the left wing of the uh, U.S. political spectrum included uh, people who were openly rejecting political democracy. Well, so what I have to say to you, to people, is this. If you think that backlash against Maoism and student radicalism and communism on the left uh, in the 60s. If you think that had any legitimacy at all, pal, gal, you got to put your shoulder to the wheel against the right wing liberalism we have now, which has a much larger following, as far as I can tell, and has had and has managed to elect a president and storm the U.S. Capitol and attempt to foil the essential function of a democratic government, which is a peaceful transfer of power. This is a little off the wall, but the uh, when they do analysis of what it takes to control a corporate board, right? Yeah. Usually, if you if you can have thirty percent ownership of a company, even sometimes a little bit less, you have thirty percent yes. ownership of shares, you can usually control the board, right? You don't yes. need always fifty one percent or fifty percent plus one to control the board, right? Similarly, yes. and what you identified was essentially and you know, trying to find a Dunbar's number in this context might be a fruitless errand, but uh, what you've identified is, what, what comes to my mind is this 30% of, yes. of, of the traffic of conservative websites is sort of hauntingly similar to that yeah. number it takes to wield control, right? So if you're, if you're the leader of that 30% of kind of conservative web traffic, it yeah, gives yeah. you a chance to be a leader yes. of the whole thing. Well, you, right? you make an excellent point. So first of all, Political scientists have known for a long time that well-organized, determined, and self-conscious minorities in a democratic system will beat out large and different majorities every time. But also, more relevantly, is you got to think about how, how do ideas propagate in a democratic society? And the answer is ideologies are built up by a relatively small group of people who devote themselves to thinking through the political positions and the logic of a political ideology. And those, so this elite, and by the way, when I use the term elite, I, I don't mean that as an honorific. I just mean a relatively small group of people who have outsized influence, okay? So ideologies are always, almost always, developed by a relatively small a group of people, an elite who work out 
the ideology in detail. And then the ideology gets passed down to party regulars, to political activists, to people in government, to people who are just interested in politics. The ideology is watered down, simplified a bit. And as it's watered down, as it's simplified into, into easily graspable public ideas, almost like slogans, as that happens, the ideas spread to a, a larger uh, a base. You know, for instance, I, 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 years ago, I worked for a neoconservative magazine. And neoconservative. Which one? I know, know Bill Crystal. Bill Crystal gave you a nice quote for your. Uh, yes, your that's book. right. Well, I I worked for his father, Irving Crystal. I was a, pub, a, a managing editor of, of of the Public Interest for a while. Okay, now the Public Interest never had a circulation beyond ten thousand people. Okay, but what happened is you know John Stuart Mill talks about how intellectuals work up an intellectual pemmican. Uh, you know, a very highly concentrated meal that you can kind of mix up with water, you know, and dish out to large audiences. And so that's that's the way things go with ideologies. And so a relatively small group of people, right, a relatively small group of websites, right, can disseminate their ideology to a, a larger following. And then those loyal followers can get involved in politics and, and local affairs. In other words, a relatively small group of people can have an outsized impact on disseminating an ideology. And I think that is essentially uh, what is happening with right-wing illiberalism today. And maybe we have reached, or at some year, maybe when you've identified, maybe it was just prior to 2019, maybe it was 2012 or some year, and, and almost certainly fueled by uh, or armed by social media. Yeah. Uh, the that we reached some version of Gladwellian tipping point where where there was yeah. finally enough there's finally enough to be that small committed group of people who are able yes. to borg the borg i think a number of things have to happen in order for a small committed group of people to have an outsized uh, impact on political culture first of all you need a shakeup in the political status quo so that people start to think hey the uh, status quo, the ideas that we've always accepted for a long time don't seem to be working. And I think something like that happened in the first decade of the 21st century. You had a series of shocks to the American political system, starting with uh, 9-11, you know, and continuing through the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the first and se- or the second Iraq war, continuing through the fiscal crisis, financial crisis of 2008, continuing through uh, things like finally visible change in, the, in American demographics brought about by uh, immigration. And for some people, the election of a uh, uh, African-American as president was also a shock. So, and, when, and all of these things happened basically while Republicans and mainstream conservatives were in power. So the Republican mainstream conservative ideology was kind of the baseline ideology during that period, and it got shaken, and people started to say, hey, this is not working anymore. Then simultaneous with that, you have the rise of social media. And what what happens is these illiberal groups that had always been around, uh, you know, that have always been neo-Nazis, there had always been what people who were called right-wing extremists, 
They never got much of an audience because why? Because, hey, it's expensive to start up a national magazine back then. And if you couldn't get your articles published in the National Review, that is to say, if you couldn't get published in the conservative media that already exists, you would never gather much of an audience. But with the rise of digital media, all of a sudden, all of these people who had been exiled to the fringes of the, cons the, the conventional conservative movement, all of a sudden, they had a cheap and easy mechanism, uh, a, a, a non-capital intensive mechanism for reaching larger audiences. And you put together the pre-existing group of illiberals with the political shakeup and a new cheap communications technology. And that facilitated the outsized influence of these relatively small um, illiberal groups. But that 4% wasn't enough to publish the National Review for Wackos. That, right. the, that 10 million, that audience of 10 million, which I don't know, that includes children and people who might not ever go to a newsstand or whatever, but that group of people wasn't enough to justify yeah. advertisers connecting with it. But all of a sudden, yeah. if you can do enough microcasting on the web, we know this story. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, one role that we can play, uh, maybe more value, maybe as valuable as anything we play to our, to our, our listeners and viewers is connecting dots among some of the thought leaders in this space. And, yes. and really, this is where you, this is where you and Bankler got to make friends because he, he, he does some of the same analysis. You like, I won't steal his thunder. You like his methodology uh, and he'll like yours. You said some of the necessary ingredients to create this, uh, did you say Pemicam? This is, a, this is a word that I'm gonna have to look up. It's a new word. I love learning new words uh, from Mill. This intellectual uh, stew pot that if you yeah. if you include if you have a powerful ingredient that can be then included in there you can change the flavor of the whole deal yeah uh, some of those ingredients some of the context that to happen you said some shakeup activities early part of the century uh, you said social media one other it seems I want to put a couple others that you can push back on or, or adopt one is the big sort of our political parties right so it, it used to be that if you were, if you, that you took that 10 million people and if you were sprinkled, you know, divided between yeah. right and left, you might not have as big a sway within a political party as the pro-democracy forces as, as Bill Crystal ends up raising a bunch of money to try to beat the Republican nominee for maybe the first time in his life. Yeah. Okay. Uh, as all of a sudden kind of the, the Lincoln project Republicans are wondering, okay, what's wither our political party. And as you now have also not only in social media, not only the internet media, but on cable media, you now have a television news network that is the uh, sort of biggest canister of yeah. ideology delivered anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those seem like also, whereas before, you know, a, a racist might not be sure what political party they wanted to join. Now yeah, it's a yeah. little more clear what political party they want yeah. to join. So big sort and Fox News, I add as contextual yeah. ingredients. Agree, disagree, what would you add or subtract? I would, you know, polarization is, is, is something a bit different than what I'm talking about, okay? You, 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 I, agree, I agree different, I agree different, but if not necessary, at least assistive, right? At least no, because- I think, it, no, no, I think you're right that polarization, which is the sorting out of the political parties, you know, it used to be, it wasn't unusual 
to have conservative Democrats. It wasn't unusual to have liberal Republicans. That's if you go back to, let's say, the early 60s. Since then, there's been a sorting out. And now the uh, Republican Party is homogeneously conservative. The Democratic Party is mostly uh, homogeneously liberal, although it turns out you've, you've uh, still got people like Cinema uh, and uh, Senator Manchin who are more centrist. But anyhow, yes, there's been this sorting out. And so you make a good point that that might have facilitated the uh, penetration of um, illiberal ideologies into the mainstream because now they knew to concentrate their efforts at um, talking to or trying to convince or convert uh, people in the Republican Party. Uh, so, so I, I would give you that much. However, I, I, I would say I would say this: it, I'm mostly con- concerned about the health of uh, liberal democracy. Now, can you have a liberal democracy, right, with political egalitarianism, human rights, elections, the rule of law, all the rest of it, can you have a political democracy that's highly polarized with a very distinct, you know, with one party that is very distinctly liberal and another party that is very distinctly conservative? Can you do that? And the answer is yes, you, you can do that. I mean, uh, now you, you, you can have a debate. So that would, that would be like, that would be something like that would be what political scientists call uh, responsible party government. You know, each go- each party has a distinct category, and when you vote for a distinct a particular party, you know exactly what you're getting. And and so polarization doesn't bother me too much. What bothers me is when one end, or conceivably both ends, but in our case it happens to be one end, when one end of the polarized groups now starts flirting with starts to be penetrated by anti-democratic ideologies. So I I would argue that the Republican Party has gone much further, you know, the the, the extent of the Republican Party out into the furthest out reaches of the right-wing spectrum has developed considerably. So I think our main problem is not so much polarization. Our problem is one of the polls is now being penetrated by illiberal ideologies. If we had two polls that hated each other and offered very distinct alternatives, but they both adhered closely to liberal democracy, we wouldn't be in the situation. We'd be in a situation. We wouldn't be in the situation we're in now. So I'll thump my annoying drumbeat. I hate the word polarization because everybody who actually looks into polarization, they end up coming back and saying, well, it's not really polls, right? It turns out that that it's it's asymmetrical. So I'm still on the hunt for another word. That's why I say sort of the big sort. And, and And your point is a different and important one. And we don't have to dwell on it too long, but here's why I think they're a little bit related. Or I think- Okay, go ahead. I wonder if they might be a little bit related. That if there is now a more, and why connected also to the Fox News- uh, to the Fox News phenomenon, right? Yes. Which I don't, which I think is more than, it's more than about the technology. Yes. But it's when you recognize that you can have a monotheistic, monochromatic, mono-ideological market that is yes. a third of the country. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, and go back to my board of directors arithmetic, then yes. all of a sudden, if you can have a third of that third, yeah, you yeah. can control that third because now it's more organized, right? It's like getting all everybody together. And in fact, if the virtue within that group, instead of the virtue within that group 
you know, 80 years ago being the most American or the most Dwight Eisenhower, or the most patriotic or the most yeah. pro-democracy and, and different presidents competing for who might really disagree, but still wanted to be the most American, the most democratic, the most committed to some version of liberal by a different word, then that's one thing. But all of a sudden, if you've got, uh, if you call together this big conference and you make the definition of virtue within that group being the most conservative, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Not the most American, not the most pro-democracy, not the most whatever. Yeah. OK, but the most conservative. And if then the definition of most is conservative is being the most anti-liberal, which, by yeah. the way, gets yeah, back okay, to the right. beginning, which, by the way, I actually now think that's the definition. I think the definition of the most conservative, what Donald Trump tapped into, he didn't invent that stuff. But what he was a master at continues to be is tapping into the deep anti-liberal. I use that word differently than you do right. that very anti-liberal venom, anger, agreement. And if you're the most anti-liberal, you are the most virtuous. Now, all of a sudden, that small committed group can run that third. That third might be able to run the country. Uh, And and that's how I think it's connected. That's very interesting. That's 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 a little bit different than the way I've thought about it. But I think it's very interesting. And it's it's it gives me something to think about. Let, 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 let me let me suggest something to you. You tell Please. me if this doesn't uh, resonate with what you've been thinking. If you have a highly polarized or, or, or if you have a, a political system that has undergone the great sort, one of the dangers of that is people start uh, the, the level of rhetoric declines. Right. It becomes yep. much more aggressive, much more hostile. So one of the problems of a polarized environment is this uh, the, the decline of the ethics of controversy, this tendency to view the other side with suspicion. That decline in the ethics of controversy, that is that can be a feature of what I'm describing as illiberalism, okay? Because if you look at the ideology of illiberalism, um, incidentally, one of the most important principles of liberal democracy is tolerance in political culture and uh, an ethics of controversy of uh, rational debate. And if you reject rational debate and tolerance, you are rejecting an important part of liberal democracy. Now, the illiberals I've written about do that. And they, and they say that their adversaries are enemies and traitors and they say politics is war. So one feature of illiberal ideology is the development of a rhetorical strategy that is hostile, vituperative, warlike. It's a rhetoric that doesn't seek to convince people. It's a rhetoric that seeks to alienate people. Shouting down more than persuading. Right, right. And so I would say that that kind of anti-democratic rhetorical strategy, that is an important feature of real liberalism. And it, it's, it's a rhetorical strategy that will find a home and that will, that will pervade deeply a polarized or sordid political environment where the, where the extremes are already inclined to think ill of each other. They will, they will grab onto this anti-democratic, this illiberal rhetorical strategy and start calling each other uh, traitors and enemies and start declaring that uh, politics is war. The only you know, a caveat I would urge here 
is that 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 style, that hostile style of illiberal rhetoric, there have been a couple of studies of this. There's a book called The Outrage Industry, which looked at this. That kind of illiberal, hostile, warlike rhetoric, that strategy is found, once again, primarily on the right. So I, I so I would I would say it resonates. To answer the question you started with, it, to yeah. answer the question you started with, it, it resonates very much, and it feeds into what we're talking about that that some of this will just sound so obvious, but that strategy, that rhetorical strategy of bludgeoning as distinct from reasoning or persuading yes. Yes. is is fueled so much by if you have like a hundred and forty character limit, you know what I'm saying? If you yeah, have, right. if, yeah. if if you if, just get likes, get people to affirm and yeah, make people yeah. feel afraid that their show is going to get canceled or whatever the heck. Yeah. If you only got 141 characters uh, and you want to make an impact, uh, you're probably better off saying things like so-and-so is a, if you, you know, if you, if you try, if you try to engage in rational debate in 141 characters, that's tough. You know, but it's probably easier to, uh, to attack if all you got is yeah. 141 characters. I want to get back to your methodology and and how you made the division, right? So, yes. uh, Give me give me a couple of examples, and you had and you had on the right because there was so many more, so much more traffic. You even divided it from hardcore illiberal to softcore illiberal. I don't think softcore. I don't think that was pornography reference, right? I think it was just like how committed (laughs) they were to illiberal habits, tropes, and whatever. Uh, Give a couple examples of where you made that division between, you know, just conservative. I, I don't want to say the word mainstream, but yeah, you know, yeah. okay. pro-democracy conservative and uh, versus soft core illiberal, hardcore illiberal. What ended okay, up making sure, that sure. division and some examples? The first thing, you know, I looked at more than two, uh, at about 2000 websites. So I, I did not sort them all out. It turns out that there is a kind of a media watchdog organization known as a media bias fact check. And what this organization does is they they mobilize volunteers to go to hundreds and hundreds of websites and rate them in terms of their ideology, right? And then they also solicit input online. And so they sort out hundreds and hundreds of websites. Their categories are left, left center, least biased is in the middle and then right center and right. And then they also- Are these the folks that put out a graph that I might yeah. may have seen on social media? All right. Yeah, I, th- I think so. So, uh, grid, so to yeah. give you an example, okay. Uh, it, uh, in the left category are things like the nation, uh, the uh, new republic, okay, dissent magazine. Uh, on the right, there are places, pe- people like um, uh, the American Spectator, uh, the National Review, commentary, and other outlets. Um, and in, in the least biased category, there's kind of like, uh, again, I can't remember many titles from there, uh, but uh, it, you know, kind of centrist, non-ideological uh, news sites. That's how they sorted out. Uh, and the, telling that we can't, that they aren't coming to mind, but keep going. Well, maybe there's something to that, yeah. But at any rate, um, so then, then the problem becomes, okay, fine. So now we have sorted out hundreds of websites within the democratic political spectrum. All right, so where do you come up with illiberal sites? And I did two things. One is 
there are some sites that just boldly step forward and say what they are. So, you know, kkk.com, okay, National Socialist Worldview. Okay, we know where they're coming from. And so there are sites like that on the right, and there are sites like that on the left. And then I, and then I also uh, went to uh, organizations like uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, the Counter-Terrorism uh, Institute, and they put together lists of left-wing and right-wing um, illiberal sites. So I had a, a, a kind of a core of, of illiberal sites. And then I, what I did is I went to those sites and I looked for their blog roles and their links lists. And so in that way, I was able to put together a list of, let's see if I, if I remember this correctly, about 215 hardcore right-wing illiberal sites and something like about, what was it? Was it 116 um, left-wing illiberal sites? So anyhow, that's how I, I came up. That's how I sorted out my almost 2,000 sites into different ideological categories. High scorers, by the way, and typically, in, as, I'm, as I'm thinking about it for a moment, AP, Reuters, uh, and BBC often score pretty high on the low bias or score, score low on the Yeah, I think that's what we're talking about when we yeah. talk about the what Media Bias Fact Check called uh, the least biased, what, what, what were we the, call centrist, probably. What were the... What were a couple of hard calls for you in terms of your sort, right? In terms of well, you know, that's using sort in a different way. Like, what, yeah. what, is, oh, this one, uh, hardcore, this one, softcore, yeah, this, one, I think, oh, this I, one, all the way. Yeah, I, well, okay, here was the problem. I, I, if you looked at, I, I ended up to start off with, with, gee, I'm trying to remember, something like uh, closer to 350 uh, illiberal right sites. This was, and remember, a lot of these sites were coming uh, from the uh, blog rolls and links lists of openly right illiberal sites. Well, but, but however, not every single site that appeared in the blog roll or the links list of even like neo-Nazi sites, not every single site they linked to was political. I mean, some of them linked to places like Mount Vernon, you know, you know, which is non-political. Yep. Uh, some of them linked to, um, you know, those one one site that appeared on the blog roll of an illiberal site was something called, uh, uh, you know, Australia's anti-inflation center. Uh, you know, that's not uh, uh, that's not uh, illiberal. So what I had to do is go through uh, the. Uh, uh, right-wing illiberal sites and pull out sites that it seemed to me, you know, and, and it basically, and it came down making the distinction between a soft core illiberal site, which was just a site that happened to end up in the blog roll or the links list of the seed illiberal sites, distinguishing between those soft core and hardcore required, you know, a certain amount of subjective judgment, but I'm moderately sophisticated. I've been working on political magazines on and off for 40 years. I felt confident in saying that, okay, Mount Vernon and Montpelier and uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, Monticello, these are not truly illiberal sites, but 
you know, kkk.com, nwordmania.com, that's really hardcore. The fact that the fact that you were a plantation and and housed uh, housed the evil of slavery, you know, two hundred plus years ago is not, or you know, give or take two hundred years ago, is not the same as your website being used now. Yeah, I would say same. that. Now, you know, I did run into some, you know, situations that were where there I had to make uh, judgment calls, and I think I lost some friends <laughs> in making my judgment calls. But however, I feel pretty confident that the list of two hundred and fifteen hardcore right-wing ill sites, I feel quite confident that this, these are the, are the real deal. Yeah. And, and you're not trying to create a certification not, system, right? You're not trying to create a badge that, that people will put on their right. site. No, listen, you're trying to get listen, a sense to be able to understand yeah. the numbers, be able to draw some conclusions. Yes. You know, look, uh, you know, as, as the philosopher said, you know, uh, it's the mark of an educated man who does not uh, require any more specificity than is possible in a given subject matter. So sorting out sites ideologically, you can't do that the way that you sort out odd and even numbers, you know, rectangles and circles. You can't do it that way. So there's a certain fuzziness in the system. And all you, all I can say to people who, who uh, disagree with me in terms of my choices is, well, go take a look and see what you think. And Einstein is usually quoted wrongly is the quote is right, but it's not from Einstein, but all theories are wrong, but some are useful. And, and so of course There's you'll make some wrongs. Too. Yeah. You'll make some wrongs along the, uh, along yeah. the way. But to me, this, what you've done is really, really useful. Here's one of the really useful pieces. All right. So here's some of the numbers that jumped out at us. Uh, when looking at these hardcore right versus soft core right liberal sites. Now there were looking at your numbers, I think about twice as many hardcore right liberal sites as soft core liberal sites, right? Like 215 versus like a hundred and something, well, right? Okay, let me think about this. As, as I recall, once I pulled out the soft core sites, see, the reason I pulled them out is because I was afraid people would say, wait a minute, hold it. As I say, Mount Vernon, you're, you're telling me that Mount Vernon is a liberal site? I don't buy it. So I didn't want to be accused of right. alarmism and of throwing in all sorts of sites that had nothing to do with it. Yeah, so but here's the interesting part. Is that, so you set them aside, but you, there were still there were a bunch of them. But of those soft soft core right illiberal sites that we can we can after I said this we can set aside. But there were about half as many of those sites according to what I saw, maybe a little more than half. But they and they had nine million visits. But the hardcore right sites had twice as many sites. Yes, yes. But they had so 186 it, million visits, right? Yeah, yes, yes. I think we're saying the same thing here. What I found is that even after you pulled out all of the sites that were questionable, and that didn't seem to be obviously hardcore, if you pulled out those sites and called them the soft core sites, and you were just left with the hardcore, it turns out the audience is about still about the same size. The audience for the hardcore illiberal sites is much, much larger. It's much, much larger. In, in fact, in fact, it should being a soft core liberal site is a bad business, right? Not, yeah. That's not what the audience is looking yeah, yeah, for. There yeah. is this appetite. And this is where I've said it too many times already, but this is where there's a lot of overlap with Bangalore because the problem that, that we find is if somebody tries to right now dance with a little bit of liberalism on the right, yeah. if they try to be kind of pro-democracy, but still kind of, a you know, really appeal yeah, right. to the hardcore conservative, 
that they're talking to Bill Crystal and nobody else. They're just yeah, not, right. they're just too small a group. If yeah. you really want to appeal to that group, you got to go, you, you got to not seem like you're calling out people who are yeah. willing to yeah. overthrow yeah. the effing government of the United States. Yeah. The, the, the bottom line is this. You can say anything you want about my methodology. It, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to explain in a situation like this. Take a look at it. However you cut it up, I think you end up with a with a, a, an audience for very explicit right wing illiberalism that is considerable. That's the bottom line. Were you surprised by that large discrepancy regarding traffic and engagement between right and left illiberal sites? Well, that was yeah. See, this this was another interesting uh, finding. My data gave me the number of visits to a given website in a month. It also gave me the number of unique visitors to a website in a month. Now, what's the difference? If you have, if you're all one person, go yeah, click a, a million website. times or click a hundred thousand times. Yeah. So, or if let's say one person goes to a website five times in a month, that's one unique visitor and five visits. Okay. So if you divide the unique visitors into the number of visits, you get the average number of times that a visitor visits the site, okay? So we can call that engagement. And, you know, we can, let's, let's make an assumption that that in indicates the higher the engagement, the more interest, what, you know, whatever the, whatever the source of the interest is or the nature of the interest, if somebody visits a website once a month versus somebody who visits a website 50 times in a month, that, you know, I, I call that an, a more engaged audience. And the thing that I found, which was very striking, is the hardcore illiberal sites had a higher engagement rate than any other political ideology. So, for example, if, if my memory serves me, the alt-right site that had the highest engagement rate was, I believe, a thing called Vox Populi. And Vox Populi is edited by a guy named Vox Day. Now, who the heck is Vox Day? Vox Day is one of the founders of the alt-right. He was a, a player in a controversy that was known as Gamergate, which was, yeah. I, I won't go into it in detail, it was basically a big argument in the science fiction and uh, video game journalism circles about sexism and racism in science fiction and video games. And this guy, uh, Vox Day is his pen name. He was famous for calling other people, you know, for, for, for attacking feminists, for attacking people who were anti-racist. So Vox Day was kind of one of the founders of the alt-right. Now he's got his own website and his website gets on average, or in 2019 got on average, for each visitor visited 25 times a month. That, that was the highest engagement rate of any website I looked at. And um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my These head. People are visiting it every day, but weekends, right? Yeah, a right. Bit better. If you looked at all 215 hardcore alt-right sites, they had an engagement rate of 3.07. So that's every visitor would visit a hardcore illiberal site 3.07 times a month. Now, if you compare that to the conventional left, you know, websites like The Nation, uh, The New Republic, and so forth, 
they had a an engagement rate of 1.95 visits per month. So, so, so what's the point of all these numbers? The point is the audience for the alt-right, for the it's hardcore rabid. liberals, they're very engaged and, and much more engaged than left-wing illiberals than the left. They're more engaged than the right-wing. Uh, so this is, this is another interesting point. The hardcore illiberals have an audience that's relatively small compared to the mainstream audiences, but it's much more engaged. And a, a group that is smaller than other interest groups, but much more engaged and committed, such a group can beat out the larger group in a democracy. So let's pause here. This is what I want to say to the people who listen to and watch this is that we have to become committed. If democracy is going to persevere, that it cannot only be an ancillary exercise that we click on once a month. It can't just be the thing that we're casually and occasionally in favor of. Yeah, yeah. It has to be something that we are committed to. We have to be not only yes. democracy mild rooters, but in fact, nerds and enthusiasts and, and, and sometimes even say, warriors yeah, for cause. Now, 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 whether that commitment manifests itself in visiting websites, you know, that might not no, be. Join a group, vote, right? Start a nonprofit yeah, organization, yeah. participate in another one, call people and encourage them to vote, et cetera. Yeah. Commitment and engagement count. I want to go over some of the groups that you uh, categorized. You looked at this relatively robust group of right-wing illiberal sites. All right. So okay. the, the various ways those right illiberal sites broke with democratic, uh, very often people say norms. I want to say principles because who's to yeah, say right. what, what's normal and if normal is good. Uh, yeah. The uh, first is hate groups. People know what those are, right? That's uh that sites that use Nazi and Klan language. I think an example yes. you used was Stormfront. Yes, Stormfront was, it was uh, one of the oldest of the uh, neo-Nazi groups. I believe it began as a message board. This is the point that that was back in the 90s. Message board connected with David Duke, who at one point in the 90s, David Duke, who was a former Ku Klux Klan wizard, he ran for governor of Louisiana on uh, the Republican ticket and lost. And he had a message board, which eventually morphed into Stormfront. Uh, Stormfront is one of the oldest and most prominent of the uh, neo-Nazi sites. And yes, so many of these neo-Nazi sites, they have titles like, uh, you know, one is National Socialist Worldview. They, they also have like coded language, for instance, there are a number of neo-Nazi websites that have the number 88 in them. And what does that mean? Well, H is the eighth uh, letter in the alphabet. So 88 is HH, Heil yeah. Hitler. Yeah. That's, that's the hardest of the hardcore of these illiberal sites. Then you've got the alt-right groups, Daily Stormer. And if we're trying to look at magnitude, that those alt-rights, excuse me, those full-on hate group sites they average over a million visits uh yeah the uh, so that's bigger than let's say like the american spectator yes uh, the alt-right groups daily stormer is the example you use the uh, daily stormer is the largest of the alt-right groups yep it's also probably the most radical but, but it, very interestingly somebody came across the style book for the daily stormer 
And uh, this is this is, in other words, the advice that Daily Stormer gives to its contributors. Yeah. And it starts off by saying, you know, our basic philosophy is the war philosophy found in Mein Kampf. And it also says the prime directive is to blame everything on the Jews. Okay, so that's that's Mm. the essence of the Daily Stormer, Mm. uh, which is the most uh, most radical of the uh, of the alt-right sites. The second largest alt-right site we mentioned uh, is Vox Populi. Uh, It's the second largest in terms of its visitors. It's it it has the highest engagement rate. And I'll give you some choice quotes from Vox Populi. Putin is engaged in the same struggle that everyone who loves the good, the true, and the beautiful, and everyone who fears God is engaged. There is absolutely no question whatsoever that the Russian military operation enacted to remove the Zeto public regime in power in Ukraine Ukraine is 100% justified both morally and under international law. So that gives you a flavor for the most uh, um, radical of the alt-right sites. And in terms of traffic, Daily Stormer, 1.3 million visits, 122,000 unique visitors per month. Right. The uh, uh, compare that to the Heritage Foundation, which gets about the same number of visits, yes. although it gets, uh, you know, seven times the unique visitors. Right. The yes. Daily Stormer gets 11 site visits per unique visitor. Yes. It's up in the higher range of that. Of yes. that average. A, the Daily Stormer has a, a very high engagement rate, too. Yes. Now you have a, a few other categories. You've got the Manosphere. You've got the yes. Alt South. I can guess. Uh, I can guess what the Alt South is. You've yes. got dark enlightenment and then the alt-Catholic, yes. alt-religious. Talk about those. Well, let's see. The manosphere is... Is that about the, men? The, is that what that means? Is that like, yeah. is that like Gamergate it, adjacent? It means something like I take it, a sphere for men. Okay. And it's, you know, and it's, it, and to say it's anti-feminist is, you know, it's not, you know, anti people, you know, if you, if you are pro-life, if you are skeptical about, um, affirmative action, perhaps, you might have some trouble with the feminist movement. That's not what the uh, manosphere is about. The manosphere says things like, all feminists want to be raped. Uh, here's a, Rouge V is a manosphere site. It should be clear to you that women will always use their votes to destroy themselves and their nations, to invite invaders with open legs. I can now claim to have one political dream, and that is to repeal women's suffrage. Right. So that gives you a feel for what the Manosphere sites are like. Okay. What, um, what's the Alt South? Is that uh, trying to relive or, or relitigate yes, the Civil War? That's, uh, those those were sites that are um, they're anti-democratic, they're racist, uh, and they eulogize the Old South. You know, there, there's a site that I classified as alt-right that perhaps is better described as alt-south. I'm not going to go into detail about it, but, but for instance, some of these alt-right or alt-south sites, they defend the secession. Uh, some of them even uh, celebrate John Wilkes Booth Day. So that's what the alt-south is all about. Uh, the Dark Enlightenment is a, is a small movement. It's mostly people who reject, as the title suggests, the Enlightenment. One of their sites says, you know, liberal democracy is destroying our nations and liberal democracy 
has been known to be a fraud and a failure for more than 4,000 years. Holy mackerel. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, you know, pe people joke about, you can tell, you can distinguish different types of conservatives by how far back they want to go. You know, the neoconservatives want to go back to the 50s. The libertarians want to go back to the 1890s. Well, the Dark Enlightenment wants to go back to about 500 BCE. Okay, that's what they're all about. I must emphasize that even though some of these, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading these quotes and people are listening to them and most people are probably saying, holy mackerel, that's how unreasonable, how crazy. But I have to emphasize that if you put all these sites together and look at their audience, it's a considerable audience. And it is not the case that these opinions are so far out and so obviously extreme that they don't command an audience. They are on, when you aggregate them together, and in some cases also individually, they have an audience in the millions. And if you can unite them around a common enemy, and that common enemy is anything adjacent to democracy, yes. you can then give yourself that core of committed supporters that can Borg the Borg, or at least yes. it might, it might help elect you a president. And that could create real risk for the country. Now, yes. I yes. wanted to go through these. Uh, and you also have alt-Catholic, alt-religious. I should at least ask what the heck that is. There are some uh, religious movements which are anti-democratic, okay? They are theocratic. You know, they want to see they want to see a single church rule. And some of them, if you had to put your finger on a single concept or a single phrase that sums up what American liberalism is all about, you could say that phrase is, all people are not created equal. And you can find religious sites, hyper-Orthodox Catholic sites, hyper-fundamentalist Protestant sites, some of which step forward and say, oh, no, we don't think all people are equal, as a matter of fact. You probably heard recently about how there was the meeting of uh, the America First Political Action Committee. That was a, that was a group of people that met at the same time that the conservative political action conference met, okay? And uh, the, so the America First Political Action Conference was a political action conference for alt-rightists and illiberals and so forth. And there was one person there who I, I would call him kind of a, what might be called alt-religious. This guy got up and said, tolerance is not a Christian concept. Well, you know, that's that's pretty extraordinary, because if you go back to Locke, you know, who was the, uh, the you know, famously wrote a letter on toleration, Locke makes it very clear that tolerance is, from his point of view, the essence of Christianity, and that different churches, different uh, denominations of Christianity should be tolerant of each other and also of non-Christians. So here, so if you talk, if you want to know what the alt-right excuse me, if you want to know what the alt-religious is all about, Understood. you might say this is a movement of people who think that uh, Christianity must be intolerant. I, I want to go back. I want to go just a couple more things before we wrap. But the um, I want to go back to the our nomenclature. So you okay. list these groups, right, from the from the uh, alt-religious who are saying uh, that there should we should be a theocracy. Yes. Uh, from, and this is not just to say the conspiracy sites or the alt-light sites. We're not going to have time to get into yeah. all those, right? Those, uh, the dark enlightenment, 
which which I literally didn't know about until meeting you. Okay, that wants to return to some natural order, go back. You know, liberal democracy has been a failure for twenty four hundred years. Okay, the uh, uh, the alt South try to relitigate, quoting John C. Calhoun, saying equality does not exist in nature; it does exist under natural law. Right, the uh, to the to the manosphere that are that are so rapidly. Uh, anti-woman, so rapidly sexist, uh, to then to then hate groups and alt-right groups that uh, that cite and use uh, Mein Kampf as their first. And, and and I say this not to be alarmist. I say this for description purposes. If we then, if the only word we use academic purposes, I'm fine with it. T- pick a word, put it on the title, define it. I'm fine with it. I don't want to litigate that at all. But if the only thing we call that group is illiberal. It yeah. feels like we are doing a disservice to quick conversation, right? It, yeah. that, that something more visceral, something more clear, something that yeah. makes it make differentiates it from somebody as well. I don't like liberals. I vote yes, for yes. something okay, other than liberals. I, I want to figure out that word. that's not a critique of you. I don't know because yeah, I, well, I think what we end up with is like calling them wackos, calling yeah, them yeah, yeah. fringe groups, nothing that is particularly descriptive. I compare that, bear with me for a moment, to what... Uh, what a set of websites did by characterizing critical race theory, taking a yes. bundle of thoughts, including just basic history education, yeah, yeah. calling it critical race theory and building sort of a rhetorical movement around it. It seems like there needs to be a phrase that is yeah. descriptive that yeah. will be really clear. I'll shut up. Yeah. No, I think I think you 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 have a, a you have a point. I, I you know I I thought for a long time about whether to go with the description of illiberal. I'm still not entirely happy with it, but it's the best I could come up with. I think maybe if we talk about anti-democratic ideologies, that makes it you know, clearer that uh, we're, we're talking about a, a, a radical ideology. We're not talking about people who say impolite things about black people. No, we're not talking about your uncle who says, oh, no, everybody knows those people are lazy. You know, no, we're not, no, we're not Have talking about- Have you met my uncle? How did, did you? <laughs> so it's my uncle, one of my uncles, yeah. All right. <laughs> but, um, but anyhow, no, we're talking, we're talking about a radical movement in the sense that it fundamentally rejects the essential political philosophy that underlies uh, democratic government. You know, you mentioned that, that sometimes that people, you know, in order to viscerally communicate, you know, the, the nature and the uh, objectionable nature of these groups, sometimes we, we, we call them kooks or crazies or all the rest of it. Uh, you want to watch out because not only do these people say crazy things like I just quoted, but the ideology can also be communicated in forums where it's not politic, it's not possible to be too explicit because one of the principles of liberal democracy is tolerance and another is an ethics of controversy based on rational discourse. If you now reject tolerance, if you now say my adversaries are enemies, if you now say politics is war, okay, this leads to a rhetorical strategy. That's part of the problem. Oh yes, and 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 what you can do, and on, in situations- no crazy and wacko is not useful. Crazy and yes, wacko yes. is so, like a, so it's something you say at a cocktail party, and it's not probative yes, and right. it is not useful. And then people, if you say these people are wackos, then the then, then the people you're talking to said, "Well, I'm I don't listen to wackos. I listen to Fox News." Well, 
Fox News, you know, the kind of weaponized, vituperative rhetoric that that focuses on Democrats as traitors and enemies, that 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 shows up. I, I my hypothesis is quite a bit on Fox News and on other outlets that are not explicitly ideologically illiberal. And so the point I want to get across to your audience is, if you think to yourself, oh boy, uh, this guy Maine is focusing on all of these crazy groups, that's true, but these crazy groups have developed a rhetorical strategy that has deeply penetrated American political culture and is influencing uh, millions of people as witness, you know, the impact that uh, Trump's rhetoric, you got to go there and fight like hell, right? Trump's rhetoric, the, the output of that is uh, an attack on the Capitol and, and, and an, an overall uh, conspiracy to foil the democratic transfer of uh, power. It's, this is not entirely a fringe movement. It's, it's penetrated the mainstream of American political culture. And this brings us back so we can finish where we started, which is just today was the first conviction of a January 6th insurrectionist affiliated. And this event was affiliated with the Proud Boys, with QAnon, yeah. with Three Percenters. Uh, nooses and gallows were set up in honor of the Turner Diaries yeah. that a bunch of the sort of anti-democratic movement operations yeah. and a third word anti-democratic works for the first the first hyphenated two words they need a third word i don't know if it's strategists yeah, yeah, yeah. theologians analysers and analysis analysis makers uh that that helped drive the insurrection feel free to finish with that or anything that you think we ought to do about it any any ray of hope or suggestion that we do and maybe that's just by your book well i would say i would say uh a, a couple of things one is you know, we have seen what people have called a democratic recession going on for like the last 11, 12 years or so. Freedom House publishes a list of world democracies. That list has been shrinking every year for the last 10 to 11 years, I believe. OK, so to, to, to come back to say a little bit about Putin and the Ukraine, the alt-right was uh, very sympathetic towards uh, Putin. Steve Bannon was sympathetic towards Putin. OK. He made a speech to uh, Human Dignity Institute in 2014, where he was sympathetic with Putin. And uh, there were uh, people within the uh, liberal right who were pro-Putin, pro-Russia. Okay, now, you know, the beast has taken off its mask. Okay, now we see uh, what what the fruits of a liberalism are. They are militarism, conquest, massacre. Okay. The time has come for the, the for the democratic the liberal world to say enough, okay, enough to these people on the uh, in, in the in uh, the, among the American illiberals. This movement has got to stop here. We don't want Putinism here in the United States, okay. We don't want any. We don't want Putinism light in the United States. And uh, I'm hoping that now that uh, the beast has shown its claws. Uh, the democratic world will uh, mobilize more effectively and uh, repudiate this uh, ideology that's uh, undermining our democratic political culture. Thomas Maine, author of The Rise of Liberalism, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for being a democracy nerd. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much, too. It was uh, is very illuminating uh, and uh, fun. Be well. Thank you so much. 
Democracy Nerds recorded in sunny Portland, Oregon, produced by Kyle Curtis. Thanks also to technical producer Sig Seliger. Logo designed by Kat Buckley at kbuckleygraphics.com. I am Jefferson Smith. Thank you so much for listening. You can rate and review. Hope you will. And follow Democracy Nerd on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Past episodes of the show, Democracy Nerd, can be found online at democracynerd.us. Go America. Thank you. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.